I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. I am joined here in studio at the Credo House by my friends Tim, Jay, and Sam. Hey, guys, how you doing? Good. It's it's officially JJ. JJ. Not just Jay. You, can I just you call must you Jay. He yeah. Did. You know we're we're close now. You can <laughs> you can take liberties, but it's good to be here, brother. Uh, we are going to be continuing this this uh, series on um, what are we covering? I forgot. Today is tongues. Tongues. Mm-hmm. What's the series called? Why I am slash not charismatic. Okay. And your name is Michael, and yeah. we're at the Credo House right now. It's it's two thousand and eleven. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. Well, you you just take over and finish no, the I just I just wanted to make sure you knew where you're well, at. You're getting all smart and stuff. So well, it just seemed like you had forgot everything there for a second. All right. Well, good. We're um, uh, we we've got uh, we're we're on our way downhill on this series. Um, not in a bad sense, but in the sense that uh, we're kind of wrapping some stuff up. I think this is our last gift that we're going to cover specifically, and then after this, we talk about the arguments for and against. Their cessation, even though we've already covered that some, but we want to deal with some of the specific arguments, especially that people who believe that the supernatural sign gifts have ceased or the gifts of, uh, God, I said supernatural sign gifts. Was that okay? That just comes out. I didn't see any grimace on your face. I, I'm, I I'm fine. I'm fine. Just You're just so used to it, going. aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about history, and then we're going to talk about just conclusion maybe or maybe just over at that point and then we'll move on to another series with the four of us charting new territory quickly uh, tim people have just come in for this series don't know what it's about give us the the two minute one minute uh summary so overall basically what we we're doing here is that Upon believing, Ephesians tells us that upon believing in Christ as our Savior, we would all agree that the Spirit of God comes in and dwells us, uh, is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to lead us safely home, make us look more and more like Christ. And what we're looking at, though, is that we would all agree that the Spirit of God gifts uh, the church with specific gifts for people within the body of Christ, imagery that that God has communicated to us that were some of us are thumbs, some are fingers, some of us are toes, but we all operate as the body of Christ with uh, with Jesus being the head of the church. And what our discussion is, is we're drawing near into a few gifts, uh, namely the ones we've talked about so far would be prophecy and healing and today we're talking about tongues where uh, the church has really and especially i would say in the last 50 years it has become a bigger issue is a discussion about uh, are some of these gifts gifts that the spirit still gives to the church or are they not gifts that the spirit gives to the church and uh, there have been great people who love christ like crazy on both sides and so what our conversation is really around this question of uh, are these gifts uh, still being given by the spirit of god for the edification of the church 
church? If so, what do they look like? And uh, half of us in the room um, would, would say, no, we do not believe the Spirit is, is giving these gifts. Um, and then the other half are saying, yes, we do believe the Spirit is giving these gifts. So the four of us are sitting down and just having a, a conversation about that, about what does this look like? Uh, what scripture are you using? How are you interpreting it? Just in a way to give people uh, a real good overview, because in, in every probably city in the United States, there's going to be charismatic churches and non-charismatic churches. And so really, really wherever you are, are, I think it's going to be beneficial for you to have an appreciation for for different views and also just being educated on those as well. Um, a lot of people would talk about the gift. We're talking about the gift of tongues here today, guys, right? <clears throat> a lot of people would use this and say that the gift of tongues is probably the most controversial of all the gifts. Now, I don't necessarily see it as the most controversial personally, you know, from a personal level. But is that true? Do you think that the gift of tongues is the most controversial of everything that we've talked about so far? Yeah, I think it is. In fact, uh, back in the uh, 60s and into the, in through the 70s, the charismatic movement wasn't referred to as the charismatic movement. It was called the tongues movement. Hmm. And I can remember uh, a book we read at Dallas Seminary by Robert Gromacki entitled The Tongues Movement, or hmm. maybe hmm. the modern tongues movement. So I think it became something of a... Um, a kind of a watershed issue that divided the uh, charismatic world from the non-charismatic world and possibly also because of the somewhat unusual nature of the gift um, uh, that tends to uh, draw attention to the individuals who practice it. It became uh, more controversial. I think probably it was elevated to that because of the doctrines of classical Pentecostalism, which argued that um, if you were truly baptized in the Spirit, then you would speak in tongues as what they called the initial physical evidence of that having occurred. And they're it's, doing that based on the book of Acts, where yeah. basically you have the disciples are believers in Christ, but they have not received the Spirit. And when they received the Spirit, they spoke in tongues. So right. they're saying that that's, a, that's really a sign that you are fully kind of engaged in the Christian life. Yeah, and I think that's what fueled much of the controversy is that Tongues then suddenly became the indicator, the marker of supposed spiritual maturity. Uh, and it, uh, it, it almost appeared as if the classical Pentecostals were dividing the body of Christ into the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. Oh, you haven't been baptized in the Spirit because you obviously haven't spoken in tongues. Um, and I think that was so uh, volatile and inflammatory uh, in its implications that tongues just by by natural course of development, it became the divisive issue, the most uh, visible uh, point of dispute among the two groups. Which makes sense why it would be divisive, because if you say, wow, so every believer that I know, men of God that I know have walked closely with the Lord, like, you know, someone like Charles Spurgeon, let's say, someone where we would never deny that this person is a mature believer, but doesn't appear to ever speak in tongues, you know, you'd say, well, did he never become a mature believer? You know, so that's, I think, why classical yeah. Pentecostalism started really, there was a lot of trouble there, right. and why you reject that now, too. Right. Yeah, because in, if their doctrine is, if their theological interpretation of Acts is true, that means that um, all these individuals were never baptized in the Spirit. And even people who are in charismatic churches but don't feel like they have the gift of tongues could still be labeled as immature believers in some ways. Well, it's possible, although um, in in more 
contemporary charismatic circles, this doctrine of separate and subsequent, the, the idea that spirit baptism is separate from and subsequent to conversion, mm-hmm. is not as readily found. It's really more in the classical Pentecostal denominations, particularly the Assemblies of God. I mean, it's explicitly in Articles 7 and 8 of the Assemblies of God's statement of well, faith. Well, that's what I was trying to mean, too. In classical Pentecostalism, right. if, you are, if you're a member of a classical Pentecostal church and you you don't have the gift of tongues, they would say you need to continue to plead that God would have his spirit come inside yes. you. Right? Yeah, they would. You could, they need to continue to seek after the baptism. Yeah. That's what they would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the gift of tongues, as far as I know, is only mentioned in Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Am I missing any places? Well, the word tongues, you know, is used... In Revelation, it is used in many, many more places. But I think specific, and so that could be a distinction. I mean, are we speaking of just whenever tongues, that word is used, or specifically the gift of tongues? Then I would agree with you. Okay. Um, in terms of an explicit reference, yes, I would agree. Uh, Jude twenty, Paul said, or Paul, <laughs> Jude says. Can you edit that out, Tim? I'm no, we it's there. It's indelibly people need to know in that you're uh, human. Paul wrote the book of Jude, folks. You heard it here <laughs> first. Jude says, um, "Build yourselves up on your most holy faith by praying in the Spirit." Hmm. Some think that praying in the Spirit is a reference to tongues, as also in Ephesians six eighteen, where Paul talks about praying in the Spirit. And the reason they draw that conclusion is because of the phrase "in numity." in Greek is the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 14 to describe praying in tongues. Hmm. Um, so I would suggest that Jude 20 and, 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 6.18 uh, are statements that include tongues but are not specifically restricted to it. In other words, I think you can pray in the Spirit without praying in tongues. Hmm. But I do think that possibly praying in tongues is involved in that phraseology. So those would be the only other two references. Now, well, some people have expressed some confusion about Romans 8.26, right? The, the, reading into that, the gift of tongues, but it seems pretty clear that's not the case because it says the Spirit himself intercedes for us, and yet in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul describes it as him praying with his own spirit, lowercase s. Mm. So that, that seems to be something different. Mm. With the groanings too deep for words. Mm-hmm. But again, I think I think a case can be made that the Romans 8 passage is inclusive of tongues, but not specifically referring to it. Well, well let's, I know we haven't defined it yet, because I want to get through to get to defining it, but there are things within our life I want to kind of bring our listeners to, especially listeners who you know, are, are far distanced from this, and it just seems so bizarre because I've never spoken in tongues, and so I don't really know what it's like. Is this where you're going to ask it? Sam to speak in tongues just to give us an example of what it sounds like? No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> he knows what the answer would be. That's why he's not going to ask. Um, we could edit that out. <laughs> we could edit it out or play it backwards. And see yeah, happens. yeah. And that was that. That wasn't good, was it? No, keep keep rolling. Man. <laughs> okay, th- there there are certain things though in our lives that we do do that express emotion that are unarticulate. In other words, are and again, I, I'm not assuming anything because because I'm not sure where you guys stand exactly where tongues is at. But are unarticulate expressions of emotions or of uh, of something coming from us that is that is a regular occurrence of a human life. Those two things are crying and laughing. 
And, and both of those come out, and they're not something that you, you come out and you, you hear them and you interpret them or understand them yourselves, but they are unarticulate expressions of emotions. Um, now, throwing it back over here to you guys, our tongues is tongues, and unarticulate expression of our spiritual emotions is it something that uh, that you see as a prayer language? Because I see as uh, four options that, as I look across the board, of how people interpret tongues. Number one, it's just the ability to speak in a language that you don't know in order to evangelize people that do know the language and speak the things of God. Number two is evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, taken from those passages in Acts, you know, that uh, where whenever they got the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in tongues. Number three is a private prayer language, and maybe that is um, a, the unarticulate expression of emotion that I'm talking about, and I guess I'm asking, is that what it is? Or number four, prophetic utterance, you know, that it's just another way to prophesy since, uh, you know, you need an interpreter uh, whenever you're doing it in public. And so, therefore, if you have an interpreter, it ends up being prophecy. So I would reject three of those four. Okay. Tell me about it. Which ones would you reject? reject I, would, I would embrace the third and reject the first, second, and fourth. Okay. So give them again. Let's go through each one at a, at a, at a time. Uh, ability to speak in a, a known language. That is unknown to the speaker, known to the hearers. Okay, now in, I do I do think that's what happened in Acts two. Okay, what I would reject is the idea that it was for the purpose of evangelism. I don't think tongues are ever evangelistic in the New Testament. I don't think there are any clear examples of that. So yes, Acts two undoubtedly, in my mind, they were speaking dialects or languages that they had never before learned, and that the uh, visitors in Jerusalem. Uh, were hearing the mighty works of God spoken in their own native tongues. So, yes, I, I would embrace one, and, uh, but without the notion of its evangelistic purpose. Uh, the second one was? Um, it was, hold on just a moment, let me bring them up. Evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, I don't think tongues is any more an evidence of the indwelling of the Spirit than is teaching or mercy, or, or leadership, or giving. It's a spiritual gift. It, I don't believe speaking in tongues proves anything about the spiritual maturity of the individual who's exercising the gift, any more than uh, in the exercise of any other gift would be. So I, 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 would, I would resist that. And then the fourth one was, Prophetic. as I understand, that if tongues in a public assembly is interpreted, it becomes the functional equivalent of prophecy. Um, I don't. I don't believe that because I don't believe tongues are revelatory. Prophecy is based on a revelation. It's horizontal in its purpose. In other words, God reveals something to an individual who then, in his or her own words, speaks that to the people. Uh, in my understanding, tongues is entirely vertical. It's prayer, praise, thanksgiving, blessing of God, and it's not revelatory or based on any kind of spontaneous disclosure by God. Uh, so I would I would have serious qualifications or reservations about three of those. Certainly, I do believe it can function as what you call a private prayer language. Now, how, how are you reading Acts two then? When when Pentecost comes, t- tongues spreading out like fire appear to them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Right, let me let me read the whole passage. Passages in Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly. A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
and they saw this is just bizarre to me here that what they saw first they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came down upon them and each one of them were filled with the spirit and began to speak in other languages as the spirit enabled them now there were in jerusalem god-fearing jews from every nation under heaven when they heard the sound they crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And amazed, they said, are these not men speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them in our own native tongue? Okay, go ahead now. No, yeah, I'm just, so uh, what I'm assuming is that you're not seeing this as the gift of tongues. No, I am. I'm okay. seeing it as one expression, one kind. Okay. Um, I'll, and I'll explain why I use that language. One species, if you will, of tongues in which these, on the day of Pentecost, were enabled to speak languages, human dialects, that they had never before learned or been taught, and that those present on the day of Pentecost heard them, and if we read a little bit further, down in um, verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What they heard was worship. These guys, the the disciples, the 120, were worshiping God. They were declaring the mighty works of God, his character, his activities, his, you know, the mighty works of God, whatever else that might mean. But I don't see that these were primarily evangelistic in purpose. It isn't the tongue speech that leads the the onlookers to conversion. It's Peter's preaching. Because Peter then turns and delivers that incredible sermon in the rest of Acts 2 and talks about the crucifixion of Christ, calls them to repentance. That's what we would say is evangelism. At most, I would say, at most, on this particular occasion, tongues functioned as a form of pre-evangelism in the sense that it brought to the attention of the onlookers and listeners the mighty works of the God whom they were worshiping. But it it was the articulate... In the vernacular preaching of Peter, that was evangelistic. On the okay, day of and if I might add, so, this is very consistent yeah. with Paul's description of the gift in in First Corinthians fourteen, where he says, "If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing with my mind also. Prayer and praise." And then he says in verse sixteen. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? So there's praise to God coming from you to him that they can't understand unless someone is there to interpret it for them. Or in the case of Acts 2, God was actually giving them tongues and, and where an interpreter wasn't needed, they were interpreting it themselves. Well, and, and I, guess, I guess the distinction, uh, just to understand here, uh, which uh, makes sense to me now of how you're seeing this, is that when Peter gets up to address the people, those people who were hearing in their own language no longer are. So so they heard basically up to verse 13 in their own language, but then when Peter gets up to give his, his message that is an evangelistic message, that they would no longer be hearing the, him in their own language, would you say? Well, what language do you think Peter would have been preaching in? Would he have been preaching in Greek or Aramaic? Probably Greek. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, so, so they so wouldn't any they longer probably, hear. I think there was a common language that all shared, Greek. Okay. And that's most likely what Peter preached in. I don't believe that Peter was preaching in the languages of the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the 
Cappadocians, uh, those from Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, and so on, as I mentioned earlier. I think he's preaching in a single single language, most likely Greek, and he's evangelizing them. But isn't that in verse 8 saying, how is it that each one of us hears them in our own native language? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, 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 that Peter is speaking all of those languages, but they're hearing him in their own language, would you say? Well, no, that is, that's an interpretation that some classical Pentecostals have embraced. What they have argued is that, and kind of this kind of, we've got to kind of come back around to this. Um, some classical Pentecostals, they are ve- very much in a minority, argue that the disciples were not actually speaking in the dialects of all these various people, but rather the people were hearing them speak in their own dialect. So, they were all speaking, for example, in their own, let's say all of them were speaking in Greek. But if there was somebody there from Egypt, he heard there was a miracle of, in, uh, of hearing in which he heard it in Egyptian, or he heard it in Swahili, or he heard it in Russian, if I can use more contemporary languages. So in other words, some argue that the, the miracle here was not in the speaking of the disciples, but in the hearing of the onlookers. I find that hard to believe. I, I, to me, that means that um, that the spiritual gift was, in effect, not given to Christians but to non-Christians. And mm-hmm. it was a miracle of interpretation rather than a miracle of speaking. Well, how does verse 4 even allow that interpretation when it says very clearly they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues? Yeah. <laughs> it's very mm-hmm. clear. Yeah, I, that's, I, I think it's clear that the, that the miracle was that of utterance, not of mm-hmm. hearing. Um, but... You have J. Rodman Williams, for example, who's uh, who's taught at I think uh, Regent University in Virginia Beach, embraces. It wrote a three-volume systematic called Renewal Theology. He embraces that interpretation uh, that the miracle was in the part of the listeners, not on the part of the speakers. Well, and let's not forget no. we're still in the shadow of the King James version that that it would be translated so awkwardly and and. Mm and quaintly began to speak in other tongues. It it's began to speak in other languages <laughs> mm-hmm. is, the, is the basic sense of, of that context, but we're still so heavily influenced by the translation decisions of, of 1611 that we're just going to keep translating this word tongues, but, but it's, uh, it makes it sound very mystical, uh, but it, they began to speak in other languages. Well, although it is true that the Greek word glossa can refer to the organ in your mouth, as well. I mean, that is the word that is used. If somebody wanted to refer to your tongue, that's the word they would use. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm looking at my uh, my favorite uh, lexicon, Lolnida, which is a semantic domain lexicon, which basically says, here's all the words that could be used for tongue. Here's all the words that could be used for languages. And as I look through it, I see that uh, primarily there is no other word that they could have used for language. There's nothing. I mean, although it, it does use the word uh, dialectos, yeah. dialect. Uh, I can't remember exactly which verse it is. Yeah, that's the one where it's... it's, it's well, and it, I think it's in verse 8. And doesn't, doesn't he use the word, the Greek word dialectos there, from which we get our English word dialect? I, I think so, but... And, and it's what's interesting, when it is used, they're used in the same sentence to refer to the same thing. So mm-hmm. glossolalia and dialecta are used t- together to refer to the yeah. same thing in that verse. It's yeah. also, uh, whenever I look at it, tongue is uh, used for... Um, not only language, but yeah, just for the the organ in your mouth. And I, I can't find of any other 
organ in your mouth uh, word that could have been used as well. So, Well, it's like us. Do we have another word for that organ in our mouth other than the word tongue? No, I don't, I don't know so. of it. I've I'm sure there's one. a scientific term yeah. that a medical physician would be able to tell us. But and, this, and this isn't to be pedantic and say that we're only going to advance the debate if we refer to it as the gift of languages. I mean, we're going to keep calling it tongues. That's yeah. common parlance. That's, that's what we're going to say. But it's good to be aware that there's sometimes some implicit – negative things that get smuggled in with that where people think of of uncontrollable ecstatic speech um and if and if we're we're referring to it as languages i don't think that gets smuggled in as easily i i think though the the only place where tongue could refer to something that's not in your mouth would be the tongue of fire that's above their heads right. uh you know that could be the only thing we'd just have to i don't know if anybody would well besides language yeah 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 so he seems to be saying, um, and I've always wondered about this as well, that what appeared above their heads were f- were flames of fire that took the shape of the organ in our mouth. Yeah. Almost as a signal or a sign mm. of the nature of the miracle that was about to occur. Mm. Yeah. That yeah. must have been an odd experience. I wish somebody <laughs> with a camera had been present. Somebody would have had an iPhone in the first century on the day of Pentecost. The problem is, all of this. the it, problem is, they would have been trembling so bad that they couldn't have h- held their hand, true. and it would have been a blurry picture true. anyway. So. You're right, though, about the the dialect. Now I'm looking it up here, and uh, it doesn't show it. It shows it. Uh, it shows it as a possible word. Verbal code is what it is. Verbal code, whether oral or written, basically means communication. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that did show up in my uh, little Nita, so it didn't fail me completely. And again, and I'm kind of chomping at the bit to get to 1 Corinthians 14 selfishly just because, you know, we have the description of an event, a very, very unique and singular event in, in redemptive history in Acts 2 that, that I, I still think we were able to discuss just now with some clarity. But 1 Corinthians 14 has, in some senses, some hermeneutical priority to me, not that it contradicts Acts 2 in any way. But these are Paul's clear prescriptions for how this is to function in the local church. And so well, therefore, well, careful I'm so now because in. you just said that in Acts chapter 2 it shows a unique event in church history as if it's an event that is not always going to happen, right? The event as in the day of Pentecost, not, not the event of someone speaking in tongues. So the event itself, the way that it's expressed, is that something that we would say Acts chapter 2 is a unique event of the expression of tongues and we don't have that type of stuff anymore? Um, yes and no. Um, which is the always the good biblical answer to every question that's asked. It leaves you an out. I think it is Pentecost is unique in the sense that as we think of redemptive history and the transition from um, really the old covenant age into the new covenant, the creation of the body of Christ, um, that it is unique in that respect. I, I I wouldn't say it's unique in the sense that there can never again be an instance in which somebody is enabled by the spirit to speak in a human language that they've never before learned um, I think that can occur I think I've heard instances in which it has occurred but I don't believe that's the normal expression of the spiritual gift of tongues especially as we find it in 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. and I, do, I actually do have a personal story here I was in, in Uganda and there was a guy that came and he said I was just in Sudan trying to preach the gospel in Sudan and when I opened my mouth I spoke Sudanese and I don't know and I, I sat the guy down and I said you swear to me that you did not know Sudanese he said yes and I with my buddy who's from Uganda I said you can is, do you think he's telling the truth he said yeah I know him he never learned a lick of Sudanese but he was there he shared the gospel the people needed to hear it they heard him and they responded hmm. 
So, so I think, uh, yeah, I think that can occur. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about in First Corinthians twelve through fourteen. Yeah. So these can be distinct yes. phenomena. Well, and this is a this is an important point. I want to make right up at the at the front of our discussion, um, and that is in First Corinthians twelve on the two occasions when Paul talks about the gift of tongues. He talks about various kinds of tongues. Uh, depending on your English translation, I think the ESV renders it various kinds. And um, Anthony Thistleton in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, I think, um, renders this different species of tongues. In other words, Paul is indicating to us that not that tongues are not always of the same nature or order or form that there can be a multiplicity of different kinds of tongue speech, which we can get into later. But I think the mistake is in thinking that if, if tongues is, when we, every time we see it in the New Testament, it's always going to be of the same type. And I think Paul is very explicitly saying that that is not the case. In 1 Corinthians twelve ten, various kinds of tongues. And then again, at the end of chapter 12, uh, he's listing the gifts, various kinds or species, genos is the Greek word there, of tongues. So he seems to be suggesting that um, that there can be a wide range of expressions of tongue speech. It may be languages that the speaker has never before learned, like a man who just you know speaks Sudanese and never studied it before. It might be an angelic dialect. It might be a I think, a uniquely shaped or fashioned uh, uh, linguistic form that is imparted to a believer for the, for the purposes of their prayer life mm-hmm. in their private devotions. So I think there can be a wide range of tongue speech. Well, I, I would I, I do hang with you, Winterberg. In Acts chapter two, it says, you know, they were speaking in other people's language, mm-hmm. and I've traditionally, and the secessionists have traditionally said, well, that's just for evangelism. But I do agree with you that that doesn't seem to be what the case is in Acts chapter two, because Peter does seem to turn and you know begin to speak to him in a language that's unified to them all. And I do see that uh, whenever you further see it in Acts, that it doesn't really carry on that same connotation. Precisely. It carries on the same connotation of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone, though. And that's the thing that kind of gets me as I've been studying this. I'm like, it does seem like whenever you receive the Spirit, that in Acts at least, that is one of the major signs that the Spirit has come upon you. And so what what about that? I mean, why isn't it an evidence of the Holy Spirit? Whenever the Gentiles received the Spirit the same as the Jews did, that was the evidence they looked at. Who can deny these people the kingdom of God who have received the Spirit the same way we did? Or we saw them speak in tongues, therefore we know that they have the Spirit. seems like every time somebody was laying their hands on someone, they received the Spirit in Acts. There are only three places, you mentioned it earlier, where tongues is explicitly mentioned in the book of Acts, which shocks a lot of people when they hear that because they think, oh, it's got to be in every chapter. Mm. It's found in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. We've looked at that. It's found in Acts 10 when uh, Peter preaches to Cornelius and the Gentiles first come to embrace the gospel and enter the kingdom. And it's found uh, in Acts 19 where the disciples of John the Baptist are receive uh, Christ and are baptized in water, and they prophesy and speak in tongues. And the interesting thing about Acts 10 and 19 is only believers are present. There's no way you can read those accounts and, and say that tongues functioned evangelistically. Yeah. They didn't. 
once again, in Acts 10, it explicitly says they were proclaiming the mighty works of God. So if you have only believers present in two of the three instances in which tongues occurs in Acts, that makes it hard to draw the conclusion that it was primarily evangelistic in its purpose. Um, Now, the question you raised, Michael, about does this indicate that tongues are somehow a unique sign of the coming of the Spirit? I don't think so because uh, there are probably another dozen or 15 instances in which the gospel is proclaimed and people come to Christ where there's no mention of tongues whatsoever. Now, granted, that's an argument from silence. Somebody might say, well, tongues might have been present. You don't know they weren't. And I agree. I don't know. But it is interesting that if it was so significant as a sign of the presence of the Spirit, unlike any other potential sign, why is it not referred to as such? So I think in in one sense, a, a person could preach the gospel. Somebody comes to faith, and they begin speaking in tongues, and you conclude, oh, this must mean that they truly did receive the Spirit. They truly have believed in Jesus. But if you're in another situation and you preach the gospel and somebody professes faith in Christ and they don't speak in tongues, I don't think you have the biblical grounds to say, eh, I'm not real sure about your belief in Jesus. I'm not real sure it was genuine because I haven't heard you speak in tongues yet. I don't think that Acts will allow us to draw that conclusion. Or, I mean, or I think... I think just from so many other places, like in the book of Romans, just so many times that it's being declared this is the gospel, that you wouldn't think that if it was absolutely necessary for this to be a sign of, of this maturity of the faith, you would think that it would be shown in many other places as yeah, well. It's, it's just not. It's, they're, that, the grounds for drawing that conclusion is somehow tongues is the unique and always essential indication of somebody having been filled with the Spirit is just not found in Scripture. Yeah, and I, I, and I like the interpretation. I know that there are many ways to interpret, like, why did Cornelius, like, why did they need to go and do this? And, and you know, how did they believe and not have the Spirit yet? And and I know some people will say, well, that was a, a sign. I know That was a sign, though, of basically saying, like, Gentiles are now being included as, you know, on the cross, the ground is level, anyone can come to Christ, and then the disciples are going there in a way to show that, yes, Gentiles are included in this, we are coming. What happened to us as as disciples is now happening to them as just random Gentiles. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's, let's make sure, because uh, we mixed up a couple of passages there. Yeah. You're referring to what happened in Acts 8. Yeah, where yeah, Philip sorry. preaches to the Samaritans. Now, here's the gospel. Remember Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Yeah. Now the gospel is for the first time coming to the, the hated Samaritans. And it says that um, they had not, although they believed, they had not yet received the Spirit. Mm-hmm. This is the only instance, and this is I argue this with my classical Pentecostal friends, this is the only instance in the entire Bible where people seemingly come to genuine saving faith in Jesus and do not immediately receive the fullness of the Spirit's presence. Now, some, like James Dunn, argue that they didn't really come to faith in Jesus. He tries to prove from some minor grammatical points that that don't hold water that their faith was spurious, that it was ineffective. Mm -hmm. Um, 99 out of 100 scholars reject Dunn's interpretation. But the question is, as you raised, Tim, why was the Spirit withheld from them? 
such an utterly exceptional case in Acts? And yeah. I think the answer is because the potential for two churches developing, a mm-hmm. Samaritan church and a Jewish Christian church, was very, very high because of the racial mm-hmm. animosity and the hatred that existed between them. So God sovereignly, I think, in this very unique case, suspended the fullness of the Spirit's presence so that Peter and James and John, I think it's Peter and James, could come from Jerusalem, lay hands upon the Samaritans as a way of saying, these people are with us. It doesn't matter they're Samaritans. They're followers of Jesus. We're all one body. We're all um, uh, uh, the, the church. And so it was as if the, the, the apostolic presence, the laying on of hands of the disciples from Jerusalem was the key. And that was the only reason why I think the mm. Spirit was withheld in that particular case. Well said. And I'm fascinated by, by if we're not reading the Bible from a biblical redemptive perspective, you know, or biblical theological perspective, we could just skim right over this. But at the end of Acts 10, it's so clear. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the mm-hmm. gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. And I love this, even on the Gentiles. Yeah. I mean, just, it blows their mind. <laughs> they, had hey, listen, forgot, guys, they had forgotten Acts 1.8. I hate to have to cut us off, but the time has run out for us on this. And I know we got a lot more to say about this because I've got a lot more questions, uh, especially uh, concerning this, uh, what happened uh, with uh, Cornelius and uh, – uh, and also with Simon, the magician, who comes in, what did he see whenever he said, it says he saw that the gift was given to them by the laying on of hands? What did he see? Uh, we'll continue this next time. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thank you for joining us from wherever you're at. Uh, please uh, catch up with all the podcasts on iTunes or on our website at reclaimingthemind.org. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.